1: We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show.
3: Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. It is me and Beth today. Beth, tell us who have we got on. Yes, um, so today we are speaking to Ed Perkins.
2: Ed is a journalist and historian, and he's here with Alina Knight to talk about his first book, Britain's Forgotten Traitor, about the life of Oswald John Job.
3: Welcome, Ed. Hello there. We are very excited because I've never heard of Oswald, John, so I'm eager to get to know who this person is and why he's a traitor.
4: First of all, I have to say I usually call him Job, but I'm not sure if I'm right. (laughs) I just always thought the book of Job sounded quite biblical, but uh, (laughs) I checked with a few people um, whose name was Job or Job to ask them how they pronounce it, and
3: they said they usually went with Job, so I've, I've kind of gone with that, but it's anyone's guess. Do you know what? Feel free to call him as you please. This is your podcast. This is you talking to us. So let's kick this off with the first question. So what was his early life like? Well, I
4: suppose you'd have to start off with uh, looking at his parents, because both his parents, Kristina Exrot and Johann Job, were German. And they, were, they didn't know each other, but they were living in Germany, both in Prussia. And they in, encountered an awful lot of poverty there, I think, and decided to better their lives, separately decided to better their lives and emigrate to London. And so, first of all, I think Johann, Job's father, came and um, got, got himself a job, which was quite an achievement in those days. And he worked in a bakehouse in London. And then very soon after that, his bride to be, Christiana, later calling herself Christina because she wanted to sound more English. She came over and both of them met in the German colony in London. And, um, yeah, it's we don't know how they met, but soon after that they got married, and they got married in south, in in south London um in Kennington, I think it was. And um, very soon after that, they started having children. The first one to come along was a young boy, a young son called Francis. And Francis tragically died um, within a month, I think it was. He died of a condition called marasmus, which is effectively a kind of starvation. So it was terribly tragic so soon after they got married. And um, then a second son came along soon after that, who was Albert, who grew up to be a fine man but fell out with Job later on. And the third child was Otto. And for a second time, there was a tragedy in the family because by the time Otto was two or three, he caught that common condition in Victorian London, scarlet fever. Mm. And um, like so many children of the time, he died. So that's two children who died. And then the next child was again called Otto, presumably because the family were grieving so much for a second lost child. And Otto, who would later become known as William when German names became rather unpopular as the First World War approached, Otto became a very great friend um, of his brother-to-be, which was Oscar John Job, who was called Oscar initially, but somehow later on changed his name to Oswald. So they were the two lads, really, who with an older brother Albert, and they were being brought up in the East End of London. I think Os- Oswald, who was always known as John, um, John Job, was, um, you, you know, came was born in Bromley by Bow in Central London, in East London, and they moved. As times got harder and tougher, the father working in a a bakery, as times got harder and tougher, they moved down to a place called Ratcliffe, which is on the Thames, basically. And it was known as Sailor Town. It was probably one of the poorest areas of all London. It was, I think, Dickens referred to it as a place where the accumulated scum of all humanity gathers. And so the father's working in a bakery didn't have much money coming in, they he was walking from, the, the children were walking to school probably two miles away and eventually the family moved to Poplar and they were working in the, in the bakehouse, John, John followed his brother in two schools that were there, he went to three schools at all, the, the last two being in Poplar. and. He left school at the age of 11, as so many children of working class families did, and he joined his father's bakery. Now, John Joe was a congenital liar, so it's very difficult to know what to trust in all his life, and as an example, when he was being interrogated later on, he claimed that his father owned 56 bakeries in London, which was ridiculous because all the census showed that he wasn't even an owner of a bakery. He was just a, a worker there. So he went to, he joined the bakehouse. The conditions in bakehouses were absolutely terrible. I mean, there, it was acrid, sulfurous, hot, and John Joe hated every minute of it, which you can imagine an 11-year-old boy straight out of school detesting it. And so he grew up working in that in that bakehouse with his father and his older brother Albert, until he was in his teens and well beyond his teens. He um, he grew up from, and until he was 19. When's the next time we can trace him? When he caught gonorrhea, and so he was 19 years old, underwent all those terrible treatments that people with such diseases had in those days, which I think involved mercury, but were very painful. But it seems that. The treatment was successful for very soon after that, two years after that, he met a young lady called Alice Holland. She was a tiny bit older than him. He got her pregnant. She was a domestic servant. He got her pregnant. But for once in his life, he did the right thing, I suppose you could say. And when she was four months pregnant, he married her. They married in a church called St. Paul's down in Deptford. Um she was four months pregnant. I went down there once and had a chat to a clergyman down there. And I thought he'd be very excited to hear that a traitor who was hanged in the war got married in his church. But he scarpered as quick as his legs could carry him, I think, as soon as I suggested that he might be interested in it. But um, eventually, soon after that, um, the couple had a baby of their own, which was in 1907, and they called her Ethel May, a little, um, possibly because the May, possibly because she was born in the May of 1907. So there they were, an apparently happy family, married, living in with with um, Job's family in east, east in the East End. And next thing we know is that Job appears in Dresden, in Germany, in prison. Because he'd been caught as part of a gem gang so extraordinarily he's in his in Dresden his wife is trying to make ends meet in the East End of London with a young baby he sends her he sends her two letters only in the nine months he was in jail he just sent her two two letters extraordinarily he sent the first his first letter not to his wife but to his mother he was a bit of a money's boy i think john joe but then he sent these letters they were rather odd letters that he referred to such things as you know i will send back the ring at some time in the future you don't know what i mean he was talking about there it's quite a bizarre thing to say and he also he also said that um we have always been good friends now he's saying that to his wife which seemed a uh, bizarre thing for someone to write, I thought, and perhaps suggested that the marriage wasn't everything it might be. Anyhow, eventually after nine months, he comes back, he's released and he comes back. Um, They're obviously in trouble. He's obviously looking for any work he can, manages to find a steady job. He finds a job with Romeo, the duplicating firm, which sends him all over the place, including abroad. And I think he goes to France at some point during his travels, His wife Alice is no doubt delighted that he's got a steady income coming in and suddenly he disappears without saying anything to anyone or at least not to his wife. And as far as she knows, he's disappeared off the face of the world. She makes efforts to try to track him, but all to no avail a scoundrel that he is. He just ditched her. suppose where we go on from there is um, what happened to him where he surfaced and where he surfaced was in Paris. And that was the first thing we find him is about 1911 or 1912. He's on his own in Paris clearly not giving a thought to the the wife and baby that he's ditched. Actually, she was four years old by then, but wife and daughter that he's ditched. He joins an engineering company. He doesn't want to go back to baking. So he joins an engineering company called Ribeiro and then goes on to a more prestigious company in Paris called Levasseur. And that's where he is when the First World War breaks out. And does he come back and um, follow Lord Kitchener's plea for volunteers? No, he doesn't, he stays in Paris. He claims that he tried to join the French Foreign Legion, but was turned down because of synovitis. This was an inflammation of his wrist, I think it was. When he was later interrogated in Britain, an MI5 officer pointed out there was absolutely no sign of it now. So you do, do wonder whether he is sort of pulling a fast one to get out of serving in any sense. But so there he is. He's, he's, he's got fighting in the, in, in the First World War. And everything's going pretty well for him, really. He's working for Levasseur. And then he starts his own company up. It's Etablissement J-O-B. And so Etablissement J-O-B um, starts selling second-hand tools to various engineering companies doing pretty well but not brilliantly so he changes the direction of the company and turns it into a shop fitting company which is changing the the, the design of the front of shops and also fitting and selling things like dummies and things like that and that's where he is all going quite well he's not quite bringing in enough money to make ends meet as far as I can make out and so he takes on a second job um He joins an American duplicating company, which um, he was the branch manager of. So he's carrying on with his own business and then doing this as a sideline until there is an audit of the company and money is found to be missing. And who does the trail lead back to? But Oswald John Job. He's. Convicted in time of fraud, abuse de confiance, and is sentenced to two years in jail, plus a fine. We don't know how much of that he did serve, because two years later, or just over that, he meets meets and marries a French woman, and he's marrying her bigamously. He's not had any touch whatsoever with Alice, who he's completely forgotten, despite him being a father of their daughter back in London. but he meets Marcel Giron, who's pretty well-to-do, the daughter of a doctor, and, a company and, and her family have a successful business uh, making artificial eyes. this was particularly beneficial at that time because obviously the first world war had finished, and there were a lot of injured Frenchmen around, and I think they call them broken faces. And Beth would probably correct me if I've got that wrong, but they they, they they were people who had all sorts of terrible eye and facial um injuries, and so there was a big big market for prosthetic um, goods, including artificial eyes. and so oh, absolutely like and John, Mary. Good. It's uh, Marcel and John marry, and things go pretty well from then on. To start with, I mean. Um... He can't be a great catch because you know he's not got much of a backstory that he can afford to tell. But he is, you know, he is running a fairly successful business, and so his um so so so, so presumably the, the the family aren't too unhappy about Marcel marrying him. Marcel's sister married very well. She married someone who was uh, becoming a doctor, rather like Marcel's father, and was also a member of the Legion d'Honneur. You know, the the um, the honour for merit in France. So. He Obviously, you know, he he was up against tough competition in Marcel's sister's husband, but he does does okay because his business is carrying on quite successfully. And then brilliantly, by the end of the 1920s, early 1930s, tragedy hits Marcel, but from John's point of view, it's it's a benefit because Marcel inherits two companies, both of them making artificial eyes. And so Job's now now got his own company and he's running simultaneously a company making artificial eyes and he even trains himself as an ocularist, a man who measures and fits artificial eyes. I'm pleased to say that Marcel was also trained in that and was also carrying out the same occupation. But then in 1931, there's two major blows that hit him. The first one is that his mother, I remember I said he was a mother's boy, his mother, Christiana, now calling herself Christina, died in London. He was terribly upset by it. And as far as I can make out, he managed to get back to the funeral attended by William, his brother previously, Otto, now calling himself William. And the other blow, apart from his mother dying, is that poor old Marcel goes down with tuberculosis. And it's so bad that she has to leave Paris and go down to live in Montaudin, which is in Mayenne, in about 200 miles from Paris. And it's uh, the village where her sister Yvonne and the doctor husband plus now Marcel's mother, who is by now divorced, Jeanne Rida, is, um, is uh, a living. And so there's the sister, the brother-in-law, and the mother all living in Montaudan. And Marcel upsticks and goes down because of the cleaner air not affecting her TV as badly as it was in Paris. But they stay married. And Job goes to visit. Marcel regularly. He's quite a, everything's going quite well for him in a way because his businesses, the two businesses, the artificial eye and the shoplifting, are both prospering, and so he's doing pretty well with everything. And he gets a hobby of collecting antiques. And then everything's going splendidly. He goes abroad a lot. We know that between 1920 and 1939, he left France 66 times. Though we don't know always know where he went. We know he went to um, Belgium a few times. We know he went back to England to visit his mother and his brother. And we know that he visited Leipzig, I think, to um, a trade fair. But the other times we don't know where he's gone, which, of course, could mean that he'd been to Germany. But then everything's prospering. Everything seems brilliant. And 1939, the war ends all the good times. What does Job do? He's got to make his mind up. He's British, he's living in in Paris. The Germans are clearly not going to be happy with him as a a British citizen, should they get to Paris. But he makes the decision to stay. My guess is that, you know, people thought the Maginot line, which was the French line of defence along the German border, was remarkably strong and that it would withhold any German advance. That proved not to be the case because once the phony war in 1939, early 1940, came to an end and the blitzkrieg started when the Germans uh, hurried through the, um, the countries, Netherlands and Belgium, and then onto France, very soon German boots were marching down the French boulevards. So Job was then in German occupied Paris. What did he do? He tried to keep his head down, but I think it was about four weeks after the germans first marched in he got that knock on the door from this mm. time <clears throat> french police to say that um, you know he was going to be interned
1: in a sudden flash it all comes clear it's a eureka moment an epiphany hi i'm marcus smith host of the constant wonder podcast the world offers marvel meaning and mystery around every single corner in nature art science culture history We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Well, I mean, just hearing
2: about Job's you know, early life—it's such a wild ride. Just jumping to so many, so much drama, so many—you know—different things happening to him and and by him um, to other people as well. So, um, yeah, that's fascinating to hear. You've gone on now Ed, to um his yes, intern his inter
4: he's a, you in- he's a so I mean,
2: yes, to put it mildly, um, yes, I think so. <laughs> You've gone on to talk about how he came to be interned by um, German forces after the occupation of France during the Second World War. Could you tell us a little bit about um, about this period, his internment, what his conditions were like, where he was kept?
4: Hmm. Certainly Well. He, he was cross to start with, to be honest, not because he was about to be interned, but because the French officer who'd, on, who'd gone to collect him on behalf of the Germans was an, an agent de masse, which was a type of policeman who I, he claimed was normally involved in, in in arresting prostitutes. So he objected more to that than the actual being interned, but they got it very quickly down to a pretty grim place which was friend prison f-r-e-s-n-e-s i hope i'm pronouncing that right friend prison um which was a bleak place and um he said that uh, when he was there what they fed him on was basically cabbage water and turnip water and it was cold and fairly dreadful and um it was you in a cell with two other guys to start with, a dentist called Henry Hill, who had quite a substantial reputation as a dentist in Paris. And also he was put in with a tailor called Marston. Now, there were three of them in that cell, which was, couldn't have been very pleasant, but Hill and Marston, according to Job, didn't want Job there and so masterminded a way of getting him out. They decided to set up a prison library and used their cell as the library base which meant there wasn't room for a third person in the cell and so they managed to get the Germans to oust and uh, to oust out Job to um, kick him into a different cell. He was very cross about it and uh, he felt that he'd been hard done by but he was a trustee in that prison, in that internment camp. Um, he used to hobnob with the Germans and consequently he got a trusty role because he could speak German and he could speak French and he could speak English. And they made him a receptionist so that when anyone came to visit um, friend prison to see any of the internees, that Job was there to meet them, interpret for them and um, you know, basically do the Germans work for them. It made him particularly unpopular with the other internees. He was there for about three months. I mean, and then the decision was made to move the British internees out. The reason they did that was because they wanted the prison friend prison for people like the um, the SOE. You know, the the the. the commandos, so to speak, sent over from Britain who were captured, you know, doing undercover work for the Allies in, in Paris. People like Violette Zabo from <laughs> Carpher name with pride and Odette Sanson and a lot of others who were basically taken to friend and, and tortured there and terrible things happened before they were sent away to other camps. But he was moved on, first of all, to a place called Saint-Denis, which was an old barracks. That was now being used as an internment camp on the edge of Paris, and the rations there were pretty awful, I think. And it appears that Job claims he got less than his share of them, and a Quaker used to bring him in special ration supplement just for him because he was getting less than than his share. That was probably, if that was true, it was probably because he was so unpopular. Um, He was a collaborator basically, and he was given a job. Once again, a trusty job was what he called the superintendent of wood and coal. Now, that sounds a pretty important job to me because it was freezing in those winters, you know, 19, 1940, 41, It was really freezing. And he had the job of being in charge of wood and coal, which was a thing which you could give to the different huts there or the main forts to keep their rooms warm. It Carried a lot of clout, I should think. He was also. He also took objection to the committee. The internment. The internees were able to have their own committee. And Job, questionably, said that they were collaborators and that uh, if you fell out with them, they'd report you to the Germans. Sounds unlikely to me. Job was a liar, and whatever he says, you can take with a pinch of salt. But what definitely happened was that Sandeni camp became horribly overcrowded. I think it had 2,400 there. It was was intended originally for about 1,600. So 800 had to go, and they asked the internees committee to pick the people to be kicked out and sent to a much tougher place. Needless to say, the committee didn't like Job, and he was one of the 800 asked to go. And where he was sent on to was Drancy. Um, Drancy was a sort of modernist structure, a very brutal modernist structure that had been intended being built originally for apartments, but it was never finished. It lacked proper sanitation, it lacked windows, and it wasn't a pleasant place to be at all. It was divided into two halves. There was the... One half was the living quarters and the other half was the workshops and the internees had to go from one to the other. And who was picked to check them alongside the Germans? But trustee Oswald John Jobe. So once again, he certainly wouldn't have made himself popular checking up on all his fellow internees. It was Time came eventually when the Germans wanted Drancy for other macabre other reasons. They um, moved the British internees out once again back to St. Denis so that Drancy could be used for the Jewish people there who were arrested on the Grand rattlers if I think they're called the roundups of the Jewish people, and sent to Droncy on their way by train to the death camps. So it was a it was a formidable place with a, and the word is associated with the Holocaust and awful tragedy now. Job obviously had a much better time when he was there than the people who came after him, but he, it was still quite a hard place to be. And I expect he was quite pleased in the end when he was sent on back to Saint-Denis, um, which was, you know, was, was a much more comfortable place to be despite the overcrowding. And once again, when he was back at Saint-Denis, the committee this time had moved on, so he wasn't too concerned about that. But uh, once again, he was given a trustee role, first of all, checking the mail to make sure that no one was sending anything out that was untoward. And secondly, he was given a job as an interpreter and to carry out the roll call along time the German, alongside the German and French guards at the start of the day and whenever else it was needed. What was Saint-Denis like? It, it was... It sounded quite pleasant to a strange sort of way. It had an exercise yard and it had various sports facilities so that the internees were able to um, set up cricket teams. They had cricket teams called things like Yorkshire and Kent and Middlesex. Um, they did running football. The YMCA and the Red Cross used to provide things like football gear, you know, football boots and the rest of them for And Tennis, they had tennis and ten- tennis balls and things. They also had concerts, quite a lot of concerts every year presumably by internees who brought their own instruments. Um, they had a gramophone committee that used to have regular gramophone sessions so people would listen to classical record on their gramophones. They had Some of the some of the internees had gardens so they grew their own tomatoes which was then sent onto the canteen to help feed the internees. They allowed one hot shower a week but they could have as many cold showers as they wanted. And, um, and it sounded not unpleasant. They also got Red Cross parcels sent in uh, with food. And to get extra ones, you needed someone from the outside who was coming in for you. Now, Job always said that he never admitted that he was married and so that he could protect Marcel. He didn't want Marcel living in Montaudin have to be known as the, the wife of a British internee. So he claimed he protected her by making sure she never visited. So the only visitor he ever got was his cleaning lady. Um, she used to come in and gather and bring him clean clothes. But that was the only visitor that we know that he ever got. The other thing, the only other person who was of use to him was he made one friend. He didn't seem to have many friends at all during internment, but he did make one, which was a guy called George Loggio. He was an academic and his wife was given permission to bring an extra Red Cross parcel in for Job. Now, George Legio features later on in Job's story. So. There was a lot of pluses going on there, but there was an awful lot of minuses as well, because it was overrun with vermin, particularly bed bugs. And the bed bugs, there was one floor of the main fort that was absolutely so bad that no one would a lot of people didn't sleep there. They preferred to walk around all night or sleep on the floor elsewhere. So the bed bugs, the bank, the bunks were damp by all accounts. It was still, despite everything, overcrowded still, with people sleeping in the chapel and things like that. And overall, it was a place where You know, you'd understand that if you're locked up behind barbed wire, you're going to suffer from a lot of stress. And um, Job said that he came during during his three years when he was in internment. At the end of it, he was very close to breakdown, so he said, and had to do something about it. So that's where we were with his internment.
3: But while he's in internment, he is actually met with two very interesting offers. So the first offer is to assist Captain Langdon in working with the resistance. And then the second one is by Amory to work and and or fight. Exactly. So which one has the most impact on him?
0: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together.
4: But there was John Amory, first of all, Langdon, Robert Langdon, and then John Amory. Now, it depends who you ask who had the more impact, I think. If you were to ask Joe, he'd definitely say Captain Langdon. If you were to ask MI5 subsequently, they'd definitely say John Amory. Langdon, starting with Langdon, Robert Langdon was a captain in the First World War in the British Army. Um, And he he met Job when they were both interned initially, when they were in friend prison. This was back in 1940, early 1940. Now, according to Job, Langdon tapped him up to join a resistant group to be ready for when the Allied invasion eventually came. People like Langdon and Job according to Job, were ready to fight to um, support the Allied invaders against the Germans. That was the claim that he was tapped up by Langdon in Friend prison. Um, nothing then, we don't hear any more about Langdon until 1943, early in 1943 when Job was now in Saint-Denis. And then we've getting very few visitors and then suddenly here's the, there's a call for him to go to what they call the Hut, which was a kind of reception area at the front. And the reason was that he'd got a visitor. And it turned out to be a stranger, a 26-year-old Frenchman, we don't know his name, but he came and stuck, surreptitiously stuck a note into Job's hand. Now, this is according to Job, because there's nothing to correlate it. But Job said he stuck a note into his hand, which Job managed to read without the German guards noticing. And what the Job, what, what the note said was that Langdon was still wanting to tap up, yeah. Uh, Job said that he'd be part of the resistance unit that he was forming at a place called Longjumeau, which is fifteen miles from France. Langdon had been released from internment because of his frailty and age. He was—he had a bad leg, and he was about sixty, I think. And he'd, um, so he was released so long as he was kept under order well, was effectively house arrest in a place for La Tour Pongarde, which was at Longjumeau. And so that was where he was. He, this, letter, this stranger alleged that he, according to Job alleged that the stranger came from Langdon, gave him the note and wanted him ready to join 50 or so other men and cars who were on standby awaiting the Allied invasion. Now, Job claimed this Frenchman, Young Frenchman came two further times to keep him posted. He said that he sent her, that Joe had managed to send a letter back to Langdon, not but well, not through the stranger because he thought that was too risky. But he was allowed out on escort duty once and um, had managed to get permission to go into a post office to buy some stamps. He was known to be a stamp collector with the pocket money that, in turn, he's received and had managed to slip a letter into the post back to Langdon. Sounds very unlikely to me, but that was his claim. It's after the three visits by the French stranger, there was one more visit, according to Job, which was by a woman who was the, worked in the post office at Longjumeau, also as part of Langdon's resistance unit. And so that's uh, that's the last we hear about that. Then the stranger goes, "That's the last visit." But Job feels that he's up and ready when the invasion comes. He's been tapped out. Now the question you have to ask yourself is. What possible reason would Langdon have to want to recruit someone stuck in an internment camp who could be no use whatsoever in the event of of an Allied invasion? But that's not a question that seems to be raised by Jove at least. Soon after that, I think it was around the spring of that same year in 1943, the second visit comes, which is from John Amory. Now, John Amory is an interesting man because he was a traitor, but he was the son of Leo Amory, who was part of Churchill's cabinet, secretary of state for India, as far as I can recall. And so Leo Amory, Leo Amory's son, brings disgrace really to his poor father, but by becoming a traitor and goes over to Berlin, in Berlin, he you know acts like Lord Hawhaw in doing broadcasts over to Britain on behalf of the Germans and then Amory comes up with this idea of forming what he called a League of a Legion of St. George, the idea being to find p o w s who are willing to sign up to fight alongside in a unit alongside the Germans to fight the Russians on the Eastern Front. The idea gets to Hitler, I gather, who approves it, and so Amory plus uh, German in support, a German officer in support, are sent uh, go along to various prisoner of war camps to see if they can recruit prisoner prisoner of wars and internees willing to fight alongside the Waffen SS for this unit that subsequently became known as the British Free Corps. The first place they go to is the internment camp at Sandini, where Jones is and a meeting is arranged um, in, in, in a hall there of which 50 internees are invited. Now, Job says categorically that he never attended it. Others subsequently said that that was not true, and one in fact said that Job was the organizer of it and handpicked the 50 who went there. Job, though, denies that completely, but the meeting takes place whether he's there or not. Amory comes and tries to convince people to fight alongside the Germans in this British Nazi unit, and... I haven't got much success. There's a guy called Brinkman who knows Amory for, of old, and he tells all the internees that they'd be acting as a traitor if they if they followed it up. There's a guy called Private Philp who, for some reason, is a soldier who's there temporarily in that camp, and he physically tries to attack Amory and is marched away and put in a cell. And so, it's, at first, it's an unsuccessful meeting. I think I think Amory said that there was an awful lot of people who'd already joined it, which was Poppycock. But um he said that you know there'd been ARIA pilots who've flown planes over to join it and all this sort of nonsense that just didn't take place at all. But what did happen was that after that meeting of the 50 people, Amory then has private conversations with various internees without other people knowing. And it ends up, so it's said, with um, four people responding the first of them was a very young lad called kenneth berry who was 17 years old he'd been in the merchant navy and been interned from the age of 14 Um, he's the only one that actually joined the british free corps which was you know the the organization that came the unit that came out of the idea of the legion of saint george so berry goes and joins it he was described later i think as a young fool rather than a traitor the second one is a guy called Tumner, uh, Maurice Tumner. Um, we know he goes with Berry and he's taken to a Paris flat when he disappears from the internment camp. He then disappears off the face of the earth. Now Rebecca West in, in, in one of her books suggests that he might've been a British agent, but that's the only source for that that I could find. The third is our old friend, George Loggio, or Logio, who was the one that, whose wife brought Job um, Cross parcels and Logio disappears and is shortly back in the internment camp, basically, because he thought it was a way of getting out to go back to his academic work in, I can't remember whether it was, it was Bucharest or Budapest or one of those places, and it doesn't happen. So he sent back, hot foot back into internment. And so that left the fourth. So who was the fourth man? We don't know, but it was said by some that it was Job. He left the camp at the same time as Kenneth Berry. Curious thing is, that he was obviously too old to fight for the Legion of St. George on the Eastern Front against the Russians for the Germans. So the question was what he signed up to. Um, that's a question that was never that's never been adequately answered, although we can take a good guess at it. What we do know is that when Amory left that camp, to quote, to quote Job, Amory was given the bird. Pleased <laughs> to say, we can only imagine what that looks like. So as he, as he went outside the camp, he was given the bird by all the internees, or most of them, which had the most impact on Job. As I said, Job would definitely say Captain Langdon claimed that he was recruited for a resistance unit. MI5 would undoubtedly say that it was Amory who could very well have been the man who recruited Job to spy for the Germans. So that's that. That's, that. that's those two characters, I think.
2: And so with Job, then, I mean, he doesn't sit quietly until liberation. So what, what is he, what is he getting up to at this period? And as you said, there's this cloud of mystery, but what, what What do we 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 know that he was doing?
4: Yeah, well, we know that he hated being locked up. And from the very early days of his internment, he tried to get out. You know, he made applications for leave so that he could, because he claimed his ocularist artificial eye business was vital to the um to, you know to, to the economy. And so he got letters of reference written by all sorts of medical associations and his mother-in-law saying that he was vital to the business, but it, all of those were rejected. Um so he applied. His own story is that he applied for leave again in 1940 after this Amory visit, which he said had nothing to do with him. And he knew that there was an internee who worked for Price Waterhouse, the kind of auditing accounting firm who'd been granted leave um, for, for several days to go out and get his business in order. And there was another internee called Roberts, whose daughter tragically got seriously ill, he applied for leave and wasn't granted it, but he was subsequently granted a degree of leave to go to his 18-year-old daughter's funeral. Um, Job suddenly thought, oh, here's an idea, I can have a go at that myself. And so he applied for leave, following in their steps, and was strangely granted five days leave. Now, he claimed the reason for that was because of his good service record that he'd been very helpful to the Germans, he'd been no trouble, he hadn't had any visitors, and so he was safe to be granted five days leave. What he says, he then went to the um, Gestapo headquarters, which is where Robert's wife had gone to get him an extension of his leave, and he'd managed to bribe a sergeant in the Gestapo headquarters to let him go through to see some high-ranking officer there who granted Job an extension to the five days leave he'd been given. That extension he did the same again two or three times and in the end was given a a, a significant amount of leave um, away from St. Denis internment camp. So what he did when he got out was he went back to his flat in the Rue du Vivier which was in a pretty well-to-do part of Paris near the Eiffel Tower. His wife Marcel then joined him for a while there. They Obviously not seen each other, I don't think, because she said he didn't get any visits. But she went there to stay, but didn't stay very long, presumably because of her TB. So she went back to Montaudan. While he decided, in his, own, in his own story, to plot his escape, he said he wanted to get out and to get back to Britain while he could. And so during his leave, he tapped up various people in the hope of finding an escape line. He went to various cafes and sidled up to likely people who might know how you know, the escape route would take him down to Spain or wherever. And found that they were—he just didn't trust them. They were—they were asking for an awful lot of money, and he didn't think that they could deliver. There was no evidence. He, he had no reason to believe that they—they they were trustworthy. So, according to Job, he thought he'd go it alone. He would do it on his own and make his own escape. And the way he did it, he said to start with, is he planned just to simply get a train down to the south towards the Spanish border. And so, his wife was in Montaudan, so he thought he'd test to see how easy it was to travel without getting. And your papers checked, etc. By going on train trips to Montaudan, and um, to get there you have to go to there's various routes there, and he chose different. is a small village, so he he one time he went to a, a, a play a town called Fougere and then walked the 11 miles to Montaudan. Other times he got the, a train to another town, and then got a, a mail train to Montaudan. But he checked it to see how often his tickets were checked and his identity papers were checked. And he was surprised, he said, that the the Germans never seemed to check them. And that convinced him that his best plan would be to go it alone and get a train himself somewhere down towards the Spanish border. In the meantime, he started selling off his antiques that he collected. He, He brought in all the debts that were owed to him. And with the money he raised, which was I think about 10,000 pounds, he bought various um, foreign currency, British currency and Spanish currency on the black market. How he did that, he explains, was partly through a friend of his who was Jewish um, and his wife worked in an Egyptian bank. Well, finally, he decides his leave is about to run out. in September nineteen forty-three. His leave is about to run out for the final time. He said he's been told it's not going to be extended, and so he decides this is the time I have to go. He gets uh, goes down to a cafe near where he lives. Gets the daughter of the cafe owner to take his two suitcases down to Dostelitz and leave, leave it in left luggage. And then he goes down there that evening and gets an overnight train with his two suitcases to Bayon which is you know south of Bordeaux going down towards the the Spanish border. When he was there he said that he wanted to go out and get a a, a meal but um, the the, the guard told him that if he did that he'd have to buy another ticket to go to Gaetari, I think it's called, which was the next town down where he intended to finally get to. So even though his ticket was to Gaetari, he had to, in order to break the journey and have a meal at Bayonne, he had to give up that ticket. And while he was there, he left his two suitcases in left luggage in Bayonne, realising that they were going to be too heavy to try and make an escape. This was his story. So eventually he gets to Gaetari and then walks towards the River Bidassoa. Um, which was the spanish border it's a quite a long walk and he sees so he says a lorry that um, where the driver is standing on side it and so he bribes with cigarettes the driver to give him a lift which he does successfully it gets taken down to the river close to the river bidasoa and when it gets dark he starts walking along the side of it hides in bushes if anyone's around and eventually finds some stepping stones across the border river And when night night is coming, he tests it, finds the, it's a tidal river, finds that it's not so deep. You can see all the stones across. And so crosses the river Bidassoa from Vichy France to neutral Spain. And once he gets to Spain, um, he gets, he, the first thing he does is he, he hides a gun he's taken with him and a map which he sticks down a kind of rabbit hole that's there to hide them because he says he'll no longer need them and he doesn't want to get caught by the Spanish with a gun in his possession. So he does that and then he moves on, crosses a couple of fields and the Spanish border guards spot him and approach him and confront him. And they take him down to Irren, the in the Spanish town near the French border where he's kept for I think it's five days. He negotiates with the British consul, manages to get his two suitcases back, one by bribing a French train driver, and the second thanks to um the good wishes of a former employee of the consulate. And so he gets his two suitcases back, and they put him the consulate in in San Sebastian, I think it is, gets him put on a train from Hirun to Madrid. And he goes to the the British Embassy in, in Madrid, who promptly give him a train ticket to Lisbon, and so he catches a train to Lisbon, and which is again neutral, and a place actually, which is a kind of wasp's nest of, of spying activity, because, every, because it was neutral, everyone's, the Germans, the Axis, everyone sent their spies there to spy on everyone else, and the Portuguese themselves had their own spies watching the other spies. But anyhow, he gets to Lisbon. Goes to the repatriation centre that's there, tells them his story that he's escaped from internment in Paris and wants to make his way back to Britain. And he stays in Lisbon for a month in a pension, and eventually he's put on a flying boat from Lisbon, which goes back to Poole in Dorset, where I live. And he finally arrives in Poole and presents his visa which he's been granted in Lisbon. And the visa is stamped with a letter B, which, unknown to him, means this man could be dodgy. Check him very carefully. So that's where he finds himself back in Britain.
3: Ed, this has been so interesting, and we've gotten to a point where we're going to find out so much more of what is actually happening to him. However, we're going to leave it here, and we will be back with a second part with Ed to talk more about Job, and what happened to him once he'd reached england
2: thank you so much ed and um, could you just quickly let everyone know the title of your book and where and um, the publisher and where they can buy
4: it yeah, it's called Britain's Forgotten Traitor about Oswald John Job and it's Amberley Publishing, and it's available in all good bookstores or wherever else you want to look for it. So I hope people go and enjoy it because it does it it does raise questions about a certain man who doesn't often get attention in the world of espionage
2: absolutely we definitely encourage everyone to go and check your book out well that's all we've got time for on today's episode so a huge thank you again to ed for that brilliant chat and to my co-host alina and we shall see you all next
3: time our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book this is just a small taster as a result we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests latest books you can support them and you can support us on history hack 10 percent of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests you can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash or search for us in the shop section thank you so much for your continued support we really appreciate our listeners and supporters So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book.